All right. Tonight we are going to turn our attention to one event in, in the life of Jesus, one of the miracles in the life of Jesus that is, has always been a favorite of mine. Excuse me. And it is the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now this appears in the Synoptic Gospels. That means it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As always, I'm going to read all three accounts, but I'm going to do them out of order today. I'm going to read Matthew, and then I'm going to read Luke, and then I'll turn to Mark, because Mark is going to be the, the source of our study tonight. Mark's account of this event is a little longer than the other two, and so it is going and has some details that the other two do not, and so it's going to be my focal point of study tonight. Now, before I read uh, these accounts, uh, I want to make note of the fact that, that the the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee is one of uh, approximately eight miracles of Jesus that we might refer to as natural miracles. What I mean by a natural miracle is that it's a miracle that Jesus performed that goes against the laws of nature, that goes against the laws of physics, and does not involve a healing, an exorcism, or a resurrection. There's only about eight of those. You can uh, think back to him turning the water to wine. That would have been the, the first one. But there's also the miraculous catch of fish that was involved in, in his calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. There's uh, the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the feeding of the 4,000. There's Jesus walking on water. There's the coin in the fish's mouth when uh, Jesus was approached to pay the temple tax and he sent Peter down to the water to, to uh, get a fish. And the coin appeared in that fish's mouth. And then finally, there is the second miraculous catch of fish that happened um, in, in one of his post-resurrection appearances. Those are the, the uh, ultimate eight uh, natural miracles that, that I can think of, at least. And, and this is uh, one of them. And uh, we'll talk about the importance of that in just a moment. Let's turn our attention to the text now. We'll start in Matthew, with Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. This is Matthew's version of the event. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Now let's turn to Luke's account. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Now finally, let's look at Mark's account. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this is our focus tonight, this particular story. And I want to start with some of the um, uh, details of the story. Let's start with when this happened. When did this event happen in the ministry of Jesus? I think it's significant here in Mark's account if you notice, he starts with the phrase, on that day. So to get the context of Mark's account, we have to figure out what had happened that day because this seems to be the continuation of a story of a, a single day in Jesus' life. If you journey backwards to Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, we're told that he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So in Mark's account, we have a day on which Jesus was by the sea. He had a, a crowd following him that he wanted to teach, so he went and got into a boat and used that as a podium and used the natural landscape kind of like an amphitheater with the sound of the, with the water carrying his voice for all to hear. And you continue that story on, and you get down to Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. It's the same day. Now, what happens in between? If you look at Mark's account, starting in verse 2 and, and running through verse uh, 34, you have Jesus beginning his teaching ministry using parables, particularly the parable of the sower. So Jesus, on that boat out in the sea with the crowds on the shore, tells the parable of the sower. And, and we have Mark telling us about the significance of parables here and, and, and why he taught in parables. And he's got this side explanation of the parable of the sower just for his disciples, that sort of thing. And here's the thing. Luke has the same chronology. If you were to jump over to Luke chapter 8, the, the event preceding this calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee was Jesus telling the parable of the sower. Now, Luke does include one other little story between the parable of the sower and this storm, but it's set in the same kind of time frame. The only difference is that Luke makes it very clear, or, or Luke breaks the parable of the sower apart from the calming of the sea, because Luke chapter 8 and verse 22 begins with the phrase, one day he got into a boat, as if this is a completely separate day. And then you can go to Matthew chapter 8, and Matthew just throws this story in the middle of a weird chronology. It happens immediately after um, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, which was one of the early events in his ministry, likely even before he called Peter to follow him. So it's a very strange chronology with Matthew. And so it seems to fit right here at this point where Jesus has started a teaching ministry that's focused on parables. And he uses the boat 
in this context for his uh, platform to be able to communicate from. And it's uh, after he finishes his teaching that day that it seems he gives this instruction, let's go to the other side. And that brings us to the second detail we want to consider, and that is where did this miracle occur? And if you look here in Mark's account, Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. And then we're told that they took him with them in the boat. So we know that the other side is a reference to an, a, a, a different point on this body of water. But what body of water are we talking about? Not, not any of these texts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is specific about the body of water in the, in the immediate text. But it's very easy to, to draw the conclusion that the body of water was the Sea of Galilee, at least as we know it. In fact, you can go back to Mark. You, you can see the emphasis on the Sea of Galilee just in Mark's gospel. Go back to the first chapter of Mark, verse 16. He's passing by, or he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He's walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee when he calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. That's because their fishing operation was on the Sea of Galilee. And, and then, excuse me, we can read in Mark chapter uh, 2 about how Jesus' home was in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a town that sat on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It, it was a coastal town on the Sea of Galilee. Now, we need to understand this location because it serves to help us understand why there's a storm. But before I get to that, I do want to mention that in the Bible, the Sea of Galilee has other names. It's also known as the Sea of Chinnereth in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 34 and verse 11 and Joshua chapter 12 and verse 3, as well as Joshua chapter 13 and verse 27. The Sea of Chinnereth. And then in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, John will refer to it as the Sea of Tiberias. That's because there was a town called Tiberias, uh, a reference to a Roman official. Uh, that set on the coast of it, on the southwest coast. And I said Capernaum was northeast, is actually northwest. Anyway, uh, but there, it had another name in John's Gospel, the Sea of Tiberias. And then in Luke, it's not referred to as a sea, it's referred to as a lake, the Lake of Gennesaret, actually. So it has multiple names, just to throw that out there so you're aware. We're just going to call it the Sea of Galilee, though. And Jesus traveled this sea a lot. We, we might lose that in, in our, we may not realize just how much Jesus goes back and forth across this sea, but here in Mark 4, he's crossing the sea, leaving Capernaum and going to the country of the Gerasenes, we're told, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. At the end of Mark, he's then returning from the country of the Gerasenes back to Capernaum. In Mark chapter 6, after the apostles, return from their little mission that he sent them on their campaign that campaign he sent them on through Galilee he then says hey let, let's go to a desolate place by ourselves they hopped in a boat and they went to uh, assumedly um, a, a place opposite C Capernaum and Bethsaida they went to a desolate location that they took by boat to get to and then in Mark chapter 6 and verse 53 they returned from that desolate place back to um, Bethsaida and then in Mark chapter 8, he's getting into the boat with his disciples, Mark chapter 8 and verse 10, and going to the district of Dalmanutha. 
which uh, I believe is associated with a town called Magdala, which is a place where Mary Magdalene was from. Um, anyway, that happened after the feeding of the 4,000. But what we have is Jesus used the Sea of Galilee as his highway system. And he would move back and forth across that region frequently across the Sea of Galilee. Here's the other detail I really want you to know about the Sea of Galilee. It's not an incredibly big body of water. It's only 13 miles north to south in length and eight miles wide. Not a big body of water. But here's what's most important. It lies 680 feet below sea level. Now that's not as much as the Dead Sea, but it's still pretty significant. 680 feet below sea level. And why that's important is because the terrain around it is much different. Pictured on the screen is the Sea of Galilee there at the bottom, and then off in the distance that is called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, this, this is a fascinating picture to me because when I picture Israel, when I picture Galilee, I don't picture snow-capped mountains. But that's what Mount Hermon is. Mount Hermon rises, let me uh, make sure I get the number correct here. Mount Hermon rises 9,200 feet above sea level. And it's not that far from the Sea of Galilee. You have a terrain that goes from nearly 10,000 feet above sea level to 600 and something feet below sea level in a short span of space. Here's why that matters. Around the sea, surrounding this body of water are these high hills with deep ravines cut in them. And those ravines act like funnels, drawing violent winds from the heights down onto the lake really quickly. These winds create sudden storms, especially in the afternoon and evenings, particularly because that cool mountain air coming from snow-capped peaks like Mount Hermon going down to a warmer, below-sea-level air, and there's a collision. And what happens when cold air and warm air collide? Weather system we experience when that happens. What was that? Tornadoes. And while tornadoes are not necessarily what's happening on the Sea of Galilee, it does create a tumultuous, tumultuous uh, uh, event on the waters that can feel like that. Some years ago, uh, how many of you are familiar with Branson, Missouri, by chance? The limited few who know what that town is. All right, Branson, Missouri is uh, the, the redneck Las Vegas, if you will. That, that's a real good way of putting it. It's one of my favorite places in the world, to be honest. Uh, just, it's, it's southern Missouri, um, there's a big theme park there. There's a lot of uh, shows you can go watch of, uh, of uh, retired country singers is a good way to put it. But anyway, Branson, Missouri has a big lake there, Lake Tanicomo. And they have the Ride the Ducks there, which we have down at Stone Mountain. And a few years back, a storm came up on that lake out of nowhere and sank one of those Ride the Duck rides. Sank it. I think there was like 50 people who died and it's just a sudden storm, unexpected, came up on a random lake in Missouri and, and killed all these people on a ride-the-duck 
boat. That's what the Sea of Galilee was like on a regular basis. At any given day, the way the weather patterns worked with the terrain, you could have such a, a brew of storm activity on, that sur- on the surface of that water that it became dangerous. And uh, we, this isn't the only time. These guys are out on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm came up. Do you remember what event occurred the other time they were out there and a storm rose? Jesus walked on water. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 24, Mark chapter 6, verse 48, or John chapter 6 and verse 18. But this isn't the only time they're out there on this body of water and they're dealing with stormy conditions. What's also interesting to me is the word used for this storm, particularly in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 24, the Greek term is seismos. It's the term from which we get, can you guess it? Seismology. And it's a term that refers to a great shaking, such as from an earthquake. Now we're dealing with a body of water with stormy conditions on a body of water, and the term being used is the same term we might use in reference to the shaking of the earth. That should give us a perception of just how violent the conditions were out there when this occurred. And this is the same Greek term used in the New Testament in reference to earthquakes on a few occasions. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 4, when there was an earthquake that occurred at the death of Jesus, it used the same term that's used in reference to this storm on this sea. And in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 2, when a great earthquake occurred, when the angel rolled the stone away from the tomb, same word that's used in reference to this storm on the sea. I just want that to set in. The term used to depict an earthquake in two instances in Matthew is the same term Matthew uses to refer to a storm on this body of water. That should give us an appreciation of just how violent this situation was. The other thing I find interesting is that there are some similarities to Jonah in this whole scenario. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. That sounds a lot like what's happening with this boat on the Sea of Galilee. And there are other similarities with Jonah as well. In Jonah, you have the fear of the sailors being talked about, which can be likened to the fear of the disciples in this story. In Jonah, you have Jonah asleep during the storm. In the storm on the Sea of Galilee, you have Jesus asleep, though Jesus and Jonah are nothing alike. In Jonah's story, there's this emphasis on the presence of the Lord and the instantaneous response of the sea to the Lord's command. Same thing happening here with Jesus. It's just interesting that you have these similarities 
between a story that Jesus would one day use in reference to his own resurrection. It's very interesting. You have this unfaithful prophet, Jonah, and the Savior, Jesus, in this comparative situation. But let's talk about now how people acted during the storm. What was Jesus doing? We've already noticed that in all the gospel accounts, Jesus was sleeping. And after hearing how violent this storm is, that impresses me. When, it, when, when, when bad weather sets in, do you have trouble sleeping? When the wind is roaring outside your house and you can hear the, the, the trees swaying and you can hear that whoosh outside your window, do you have trouble sleeping? Have any of you ever experienced a hurricane? They're not fun. I went through one my first year living in Florida. In fact, my first two years we had a hurricane hit us. I kind of got to the point where I just expected there to be a hurricane every year. In 2004, I had started working in Florida. In February and September, we had Hurricane Ivan. Uh, It was a strong Category 3. It wiped out the Interstate 10 bridge over the Bay of Pensacola. Uh, It took a number of lives, and it took us two years to kind of bounce back in the community from that storm. I remember that night. I don't know how this happened. Well, Sarah and I uh, stayed with our our youth deacon uh, that evening, but I remember we actually had an air mattress set up in their dining room, and their dining room was on the front of the house. I could, I don't know how, but I could feel the wind inside the house. We were boarded up, but I could still feel that wind coming through the walls. I don't know how. And and it was so hard to sleep because you could just, you could hear trees snapping. You could hear uh, things happening outside, and, and you just, you don't know what's going on. I, I, I never want to be, live through a hurricane again. I'm gonna, if I was ever in a place where a hurricane was going to hit, I was going to be down. And I'm sitting here thinking, how? With the terminology used in reference to this storm, with the, with the information we're told about it and how violent it sounds, how is Jesus able to sleep? We need to know, remember, this is not a boat like the Titanic. This is not a boat with multiple levels. He's asleep on the deck, but in the stern. That doesn't mean below deck. That means on the back of the boat. He's got to have water hitting him. He's got to have the wind hitting him. He's got to be able to hear the franticness of all the other disciples, but he's asleep. Doesn't that fascinate you? How can he be asleep in those kind of conditions? I actually think Jesus' sleep indicates two things. I think, number one, it indicates that he was human. I love moments in the Gospels where I'm exposed to the humanity of Jesus because it helps me appreciate his ability to know what it's like to be me. In Mark's account, 
this event is unfolding in the evening of the same day he had just spent teaching. He was absolutely exhausted. You've been there before, where the activities of a particular day or a series of days has so exhausted you that you just passed out, that, that nothing could wake you. That's, that's how tired Jesus is here. Jesus knows what it's like to experience that level of fatigue and exhaustion. And it's so much fatigue and exhaustion that he's going through right now that he's literally sleeping in a storm on a boat. I mean, it's one thing if you're on dry land where that's not moving, but on a boat that's getting tossed around, water being sprayed, and wind being blown. That's how exhausted he is. But I also think it indicates that's how confident he is in his father. See, all throughout the Bible, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago in a a sermon, but all throughout the Bible, sleep gets associated with trusting the Lord. David wrote several times about this in the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 3, when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son, he said, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And then he turned around in the very next verse and said, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And that led him to say, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. David would make a similar statement in in Psalm 4, in verse 8, when he said, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In other words, David communicates in the Psalms that he was able to find rest in the midst of turmoil because he knew God was in control. Here's Jesus. Oh, God in the flesh, he's in control. But couldn't Jesus have stopped the storm before he went to bed? Couldn't he have done something about that before he laid down? See, Jesus didn't even worry about the storm. Not necessarily because he was going to control it, but because he knew everything was under the control of his father. Isn't that why he's able to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. Because he understands that his father is in control of everything. So Jesus is sleeping despite the circumstances. And what are the disciples doing in the meantime? They're panicking. I don't think there's any other way to describe it but that they're, they're in a state of panic. Based on what they said to Jesus, they said, we are perishing. All three Gospels record that. We are perishing. They assume that this was a life or death situation. And their perception of danger was very much real and, and very much 
in keeping with the experience. Mark chapter 4 and verse 37 says that the boat was filling with water. Matthew chapter verse 24 says that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 says that the boats were filling with water and were in danger. It's, Luke's very specific. They were literally in danger. So they're panicking. And, it, and it's justifiable to a degree, justifiable in the sense that they were literally in a state of peril. But there's a couple observations I think worth making at this point. The first thing that stood out to me is that at least four of these guys on this boat were experienced fishermen. At least four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They had worked on this lake. They knew the dangers of being out on this water when a storm arose. They knew how to navigate a storm if necessary. At least four of these guys were experienced fishermen who know life on a boat. And those guys are panicking. Now, I'll tell you this. If I'm Matthew, the tax collector out there, and I see Peter, Andrew, James, and John panicking, I'm going to panic more. So the fact that they're panicking and you've got this level of experience with them should show you just how serious the situation was. The other thing that stood out to me, though, is that this wasn't a trip that the disciples suggested to Jesus. Jesus is the one that said, hey, I want to go there, so let's set sail. Jesus was the initiator of the trip. And it makes me wonder, they, and, they, they, and they took off without any question, without any concern. I, 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 I wonder if Peter's sitting there in the back of his mind going, well, we really shouldn't set out this time of day. We should wait until the morning. Because I know at this time of day, storms can rise. We should wait when there's a less likely chance of a storm. I wonder if any of them thought that way, because it's not vocalized. In fact, the, the, it appears as if they followed Jesus' direction to set sail with unquestioning faith and obedience, as one author said. It makes me wonder if initially they've got, they've got confidence in him. Initially. That, okay, this might not be the best time to set sail, or we know the possibility of storms on this sea, but we've got the guy with us who just healed a lame man, who just cured a leper, the guy who just, with his word, not even in the presence of a guy, a centurion's servant, was able to heal him. We don't have anything to worry about. I wonder if that crossed their mind. If they had a, a unique form of confidence in Jesus because of the things they had seen. And if they did, that confidence went out the window or over the side of the boat. Because they wake Jesus up and, and notice how they wake him up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That statement, <coughs> excuse me, that statement sounds very accusatory to me. 
you don't care about us? How offensive is their words here? You don't care about us. Wake up. Their statement was an accusation against Jesus that his sleeping status was an indicator of how much he cared about them. When the reality was their inability to remain calm was a commentary on how little they trusted him. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I find it interesting that they referred to him as teacher. Now don't get me wrong, they referred to him as teacher or rabbi on numerous occasions. But I find it interesting here. They, make no, they don't refer to him in this moment, in this storm, on this boat. They don't refer to him as Son of God, as Christ, or any other title that associates him with God. They don't refer to him with any, any sort of language or any sort of terminology that gives credence to his relationship with the Father. They do not acknowledge his Messiahship when they reference him. It's simply teacher. And that makes me think that despite witnessing the medical ailments being cured by Jesus and the demons being exercised by Jesus, their faith wasn't solidified completely. There was something missing. They could, they could see him as a rabbi right now, but they weren't seeing him as a Messiah right now, as Savior, as God in the flesh. And I think that's the crux of the story. I think that's the crucial point, is that they weren't seeing Jesus for who he is at this moment. The storm limited their perception. Before we drive home that point in just a moment, let's talk about what Jesus does. Jesus wakes up. And in Mark's account, he, uh, he rebuked the wind the sea immediately. He said, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I love the fact that the wind and the sea instantly obeyed Jesus. What I love is that nature never talks back to Jesus. Nature never challenges Jesus. Nature never corrects Jesus. Nature never seeks a second opinion. Nature never rationalizes or, or justifies what they're doing. Nature just obeys. We could learn a lot from nature. It just obeys. And it's very important here. This particular event has significance in the identity of Jesus. Because the instant obedience of nature shows that Jesus was fully divine. That he was creator. Because only the one who had created the winds and the seas could have the power to still them so quickly. 
So when Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, he demonstrated sovereignty over those elements. A sovereignty that in the Old Testament is attributable to Yahweh, to God. In this moment, Jesus does something that no one could argue. That sentence is not going to make sense. Jesus does something in this miracle that so connects him with God that it's undeniable. Because only God could control the wind and the waves. It makes me think to the parting of the Red Sea. How God controlled the elements to create, to to move this body of water out of the way and make dry ground appear. Only God can do that. And now Jesus is controlling those same elements in a different way, but controlling those same elements. This miracle proved that Jesus was the Son of God. There's a little interesting facet about this miracle as well that I just want to mention, and that it's the, the language of the miracle is very similar to an exorcism. I thought this was fascinating. The word translated rebuked and be still were used back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 25 with reference to an exorcism. Now, I'm not trying to say that the storm was a demon. I'm just saying that's a very interesting little piece of information. Because the event that's going to immediately follow this miracle in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the event that follows is Jesus going to the, the region of the Gerasenes meeting a guy who is demon-possessed by legion, and he casts legion out into a herd of pigs. I, I, I don't know what to make of that entirely. I just find that fascinating, that the language that's used in exorcisms is used by Jesus directed at this storm. And the very next story is the most popular exorcism of Jesus' career. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Do with it what you wish. So let's talk about the rebuke of the disciples. Jesus rises from his sleep, calms the storm, it instantly responds, and then he turns to the disciples. And this is one of those moments where you don't want to be a disciple. This is one of those moments where, where you, you don't want to be one of those guys on the boat because you just feel small afterwards. Because Jesus turns to them. And in Mark's gospel, he criticizes them for having no faith. In Matthew's gospel, he criticizes them for having little faith. And in Luke's gospel, he criticizes them for either lacking or misplacing their faith because he says, where is your faith? I'm not sure which one is the worse one. Because none of them are good. He points out that they have a faith problem. They may have had confidence in him when they set out on that trip, but when the storm actually hit, they lost that confidence. Their trust in him went out the window, and when they referred to him as teacher and not some other terminology that, that um, acknowledged his deity, 
it shows that there was something lacking at the very least. You have little faith, or you have no faith, or where is your faith? Jesus' response indicates that the disciples should have had faith rather than fear. And he rebuked them for that. When you think about everything they had seen up to this point, the miracles, uh, whether they were exorcisms or, or healings, or even another natural miracle, the water to wine episode, they should have had confidence that he could handle this situation. And shouldn't seeing him at peace and calm in the back of that boat have given them a sense of peace and calm? See, this story served an important function, serves an important function. It helps us understand what faith is. That faith is more than just intellectual assent. Faith is a trust in Jesus. Faith is trust in a person, in a being. It's not just something you know. Think about that definition in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Since... I just went blank on it. <laughs> I started it and then just went blank. The substance of things hoped for. That's why I started in the absence of the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Did I get it, Ben? All right. I, I, I probably construed some translations there, but you think about that definition. Faith. Faith is more than just your ability to know something is correct. Two plus two equals four is not faith. And these disciples had a true struggle with faith in the moment. Until they saw those winds and those waves instantaneously stopped. And when they saw that, Mark indicates that they were filled with great fear. Now how about that? They're panicking during the storm. They're afraid during the storm. They're more afraid after the storm because of what they just witnessed Jesus do. Matthew says they marveled. Luke says that they were afraid and they marveled. The disciples' reaction to the calming of the sea is the same reaction they will experience at the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9 and verse 6, and the same reaction described of them in Mark chapter 16 and verse 8 when Jesus rose from the grave. Now think about that. Their reaction to the calming of this sea is the same reaction they're going to have after the resurrection. That's how significant this was. And they were even more afraid of Jesus' power than they were of the storm. Now granted, that fear would include respect. 
So what can we really gain from this story? We only have a few minutes left, and I want to get to this without belaboring the other. What can we learn from this story? The first thing I think we learn from this story is how to handle the storms of life. We've all got storms. It doesn't have to involve winds and waves to be a storm. Anything that provides conflict in our lives and creates in us a sense of fear is a storm. And when we look at this story, we see how not to handle a storm. And we're reminded we're supposed to operate based on faith. See, I think the reason these disciples struggled to have faith in the moment is because they were looking at God through the lens of their circumstances rather than looking at their circumstances through the lens of God. So God was too small from their vantage point to handle their storm. That's where we need to learn from them, to not make that same mistake. As we face the storms of life, we must never forget who's on board with us, who's walking with us, who is on our side. We need to know that the architect of the universe, the great physician, the Alpha and Omega, the omniscient and omnipotent Father of mankind, has promised to give us rest, has promised to work all things for a good purpose, and has promised to never let anything separate us from his love. So we should never approach a storm and tell God how big that storm is in fear. Instead, we should approach the storm in faith, telling the storm how big our God is. I think that's the first lesson we should learn from this story. Second lesson I think we should learn from it is how to submit. I've mentioned already how the winds and the waves surrendered to Jesus instantaneously. Why can't we do that? Why is it so hard for us to surrender our will to the will of the Lord? I find it very interesting, something that's written in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. In Colossians 1, Paul compared Jesus' supremacy over creation to his supremacy over the church. He writes this, he says, Jesus, in reference to Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a long reading. Let me give you the gist of it. In relation to creation, Paul referred to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation and indicated that all things were created by him and through him, and as a result, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In regards to the church, 
Paul referred to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead and indicated that all things were reconciled through him, and as a result, he is the head of the body, the church. There's a comparison being made there. That just as Jesus has authority over creation, he has authority over the church. And if the winds and the waves are going to surrender to that authority instantaneously, then the individual members of the body of Christ ought to surrender in the same fashion. We could learn a lot from the winds and the waves. They're not stubborn like we are. They're not driven by their own agenda like we are. There's a lesson here for us to learn how to be submissive to the Lord that shouldn't be overlooked. Because that is an expectation. In fact, such submission is a demonstration of our love for Him. How did Jesus say He would know that we love Him? John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, you know it. If you know it, you do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, what he's really saying, if you love me, you'll surrender to me like the winds and the waves. I love this story. I love this miracle. Because it's unlike any of the others. It's very easy to go into a healing miracle and be like, oh, this is just like that healing miracle over there, just a different disease or a different ailment or a different malady. It's easy to encounter an exorcism and go, well, he exercised a demon over there, so it's going to be the same thing. Uh, maybe there were more demons here than there were over there, or maybe that demon manifested itself in a different way than that demon over there, but they're all exorcisms. There's nothing like Jesus rising from a sleep and saying, peace be still, and everything stopping. This is one of those stories that if I could travel back in time and experience, for some reason I'd love to experience this. Even though I guarantee 100% if I were on that boat, I would be panicking like all the other guys. Maybe more so, being that I don't ever go out on boats. But to see the power of Christ manifest itself in that way would be absolutely amazing. And I'm just sad that in retrospect, I would have lacked the faith to be confident of who's on board with me, just like those guys. I hope tonight as we study this particular event in the life of Jesus that it's been a blessing to you. We intend to, pres uh, to uh, resume this study uh, next week with uh, uh, another event in the life of Jesus. Uh, let us conclude now with a word of prayer before we dismiss.
Lord God in heaven, we are, are so um, grateful for the life of Jesus. We acknowledge that he is your son. We acknowledge that he is creator. We acknowledge that he is sovereign. We acknowledge that he is our savior. Lord, we can take that for granted so many times and we can struggle with surrendering to, to his will so many times and we can forget that he's our sympathizing high priest so many times. Help us, Lord, not to lose sight of him. Help us not to lose sight of you. Help us not to focus on the storms and the circumstances, but to turn our faith in our, to turn our fears over to you in faith, knowing that you're in control. Forgive us of our failures, for all too often we are just like the disciples on that boat. And Lord, may we grow in our faith more and more every day. It is through the name of Jesus Christ that we offer this prayer. Amen.